Galatians. Galatians. Now remember, this is our, I don't know, almost 30th message from the book of Galatians. And we're going to finish chapter 1 probably next week. Um, and let's, let's remember what the great theme of the book of Galatians is. That salvation is by grace alone. You, you can't work for your salvation. It's a gift that is imparted by grace. Isn't that a wonderful thing? There's nothing that I can do. There's nothing that I can do for my own salvation except receive that free gift that he's offered. But that's not the only theme of Galatians. It's a threefold theme. And the first is that I am saved by grace. Salvation is by grace. The second part, though, I think is so important to us who are trying to serve the Lord, and that is that we serve the Lord by grace. That we don't have to do it in our own power or in our own strength. Again, I think of the Presswoods. They're not alone sitting in that hospital right now. The grace of God, the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ is with them. The indwelling Holy Spirit of God is with them because they're born again. The Holy Spirit came and dwelt in them when they received Christ as their Savior. They're not alone and they can walk through this. And I can tell you from personal experience that God will carry you through things that you never thought that you could endure because His strength is made perfect in our weakness, that the Christian life, this, this, this service that we do for the Lord, it is also by grace. But then the third thing we need to remember is just not only that when we serve the Lord, give the gospel, uh, live out our faith, but living the Christian life is by grace. Uh, remember what the Bible says in chapter 3 of the book of Galatians, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should believe a lie? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? No. No. How many of you have ever tried to get better? It doesn't work. How many, guys, how many times have you told your wife, I'm going to change. I'm, I, I promise I'm going to change. And what does your wife say? Yeah, right. You know what? You might not be able to change, but the Holy Spirit of God in you will change you. You will be a new creature. And uh, that is by the grace of God. We're going to see a perfect example of that this morning. Let's start reading in verse 11. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, no man could come up with our faith. You know why? Because a man always wants you to do something. You know, you got to get baptized. You got to give money to the church. You got to live a good life. You got to pay your taxes or don't pay your taxes. Whatever it is, they're going to tell you to do something in order to be a good Christian. In order to be able to go to heaven, do this, do this, do this. You got to you got to meet all of these requirements in order to be able to go to heaven. Only God could come up with a faith that says, "You know what you can do?" Nothing. That's why Jesus Christ said, "I did it for you." Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That is a faith that doesn't come from man. That's a faith that comes only by revelation of Jesus Christ, as the Apostle Paul said. Now, let's look at the next verse, verse 13. For ye have heard of my conversion, I'm sorry, of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. And we looked the last time we were together in the book of Galatians about what a miracle of God it is. The person, 
that the least likely person in the world to become the greatest evangelist in the world, God made the greatest evangelist in the world. And when we use the analogy, this would be like Osama bin Laden getting saved and becoming an evangelist for the faith. That's the Apostle Paul. He would go into churches and kill the people. That's what he was doing. Sometimes we look at people, and we we were driving down the road yesterday, and I heard Lydia say, Jacob, look at that guy. And I looked and looked in the window, and this was the freakiest-looking dude I've ever seen in my life. He had green dreadlocks and tattoos everywhere and little baubles dangling from the, the, his things. And Lydia said, I wish I had my camera. And you know what I thought of? I really did in one of my only spiritual times this week. But what I thought of as I saw this guy was, you know what? God could save that guy. God could. And I know some of you are thinking, how do you know he's not saved? Well, he didn't look it. Okay, that's all I can say. God, when we look at people, we have to realize that he could save them. When, I, I was having that thought when I was being driven to the airport in Beirut last Saturday. And... We're driving through this Hezbollah uh, uh, settlement. This is where their headquarters is, driving by their mosque. And I couldn't help. The, the last message I had preached here before I left was that the most unlikely person to get saved and become a preacher did. Can you imagine if the head of that mosque got saved and started preaching the gospel in Lebanon? Do you believe that God could do that? I do too. And so here's the Apostle Paul describing himself... For ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. Um, let me make a, just a theological comment here. Some of you have been exposed to teaching that the church didn't begin until the Apostle Paul. Well, apparently that's not the case. Is that right? He was persecuting the church before he was saved. So apparently the church existed before the Apostle Paul. Um, there was a guy on the radio, I don't know if he still is, his name was Terry McLean, and um, he taught what this system called Mid-Acts Dispensational Truth. And he believed that the church didn't begin until the middle of the book of Acts, and um, he was mistaken. All right, verse 14. And profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the heathen. Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia. And I want you to notice this, this phrase right here. And returned again unto Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. But other of the apostles saw I none, save James, the Lord's brother. Now, you might want to mark verse 19. Much to the shock of many people in Shelby County, Jesus Christ had a brother. Mary gave birth to more children than only the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, that's, that's a very important verse for some of our family members. Verse 20. Now, the things which I write unto you, 
Behold, before God, I lie not. Afterwards, I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia and was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they had heard only that he which had persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith which once he destroyed, and they glorified God in me. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, help us to be people that when the world sees us, when other believers see our lives and the change that you've made in us, that it brings you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I want us to look at a comparison between the way Paul started to go to Damascus and the way that he ended up going to Damascus. Um, Remember, we've looked at our theme, salvation by grace, serving God by grace, living the Christian life by grace. But what happened here with the Apostle Paul? Well, he was converted. He was converted. What does that mean? Well, he left a former system of belief for a new one. He, he was, the Bible says, uh, in time past in the Jews' religion. So he traded one system of belief for another. He left a former manner of life and adopted a new one. Now, remember how the Apostle Paul would have looked. He would have had the, the curls in his hair. He would have had the box on his forehead holding the scriptures. He would have had certain types of clothing on. He would have had scripture hanging from his his coat. He changed the way that he looked. He changed his manner of life. He changed his diet. He changed everything. He left one manner of life and adopted a new one. He left what had been his trust and confidence and placed that trust and confidence in a person. You see, before his trust and confidence had been in himself, in, in himself and in his own righteousness, now he had to trust something else, someone else, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, don't miss this. I'm going to make three statements that I want you to really tie into. And, and we're going to be a little bit more teachy today than normal. I want you to think about some things. First of all, becoming a Christian does not mean that you add Jesus to your pantheon of deities. I was in Rome and I went into the pantheon. And, you know, the pantheon, pan, that's all, theon, gods. This was a a temple that was made to all the gods in the Roman Empire and the Roman system of belief. Well, then they turned it into um, a Christian uh, temple. And when you would walk into it, then you had all the idols of the Christian faith that you could bow down to. Now listen, when a person is converted from a former life to a new life, they don't just have all of the things they were trusting on a shelf and put Jesus on that shelf with it. I think of Ravi Zacharias who was preaching in India as a young evangelist and he was preaching and all of a sudden many people during the invitation, the time when they were at, when, when he asked them to come and receive Christ, Many people were coming and and they were going to receive Christ. Well, an older man that was there with him stood up and spoke to the people. And they all went back and sat down, all of them. And Ravi looked at him and said, asked him, what did you tell them? He said, I told them that they had to forsake all of their gods and trust only Jesus. See, they were all willing to add Jesus. They already have a million gods. What's one more? 
They were willing to do that, but to say, everything else is going to be forsaken. And I'm only going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That was too much for them. You know, we have that same problem in America. See, we have people that are willing to say, okay, me and Jesus, we got our own thing going. You know, nobody, nobody can tell me that I'm supposed to be in church, that, that I'm supposed to... I, I, I want to follow Jesus in my own way. There's only one way to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's on your face saying, Lord Jesus, I deserve hell. The only way that I can have any hope of eternal life is for you to be my Lord. That's it. That's it. We can't just add Jesus to our own pantheon of deities. So that's number one. Number two, becoming a Christian does not mean that you let Jesus come into your life. See, we have all this terminology that we've, that we've bought into as Christians. Let Jesus come into your life. Man, there's a big difference between letting Jesus Christ come into your life and letting Jesus Christ be Lord of your life. See, what we want to do, we want to have a Savior that can walk alongside us and help us when time gets rough, as opposed to one that we follow and say, wherever you lead, I'll go. You're my Lord. You're my Savior. My way was leading me to destruction. That's what the Bible says. And ye hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, who walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. You see, what we have to understand is before we're born again, we're following Satan. So you can't say to Jesus, come with me, walk with me as I follow Satan. How many of you think that's a bad formula? <laughs> no, here's the deal, man. I'm not saying that that's the thought process that the average person has. Uh, only once or twice in my life have I had people tell me they were following Satan. How many of you have ever had somebody tell you that? I have. That is... So I told Laura, I said, no, you can't be... No, I'm kidding. Not just... <laughs> Was that bad? Was that too far? Perhaps. Okay, all right. But I have had people tell me that. But most people say, I got it covered. I'm okay. They might say, yes, I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. I believe that stuff. You know, that the Bible says the demons believe in, jo in, in Jesus Christ and tremble. Salvation is much more than an intellectual acknowledgement of the existence of Jesus Christ. Lots of people believe that He existed. Many of them even believe that He rose from the dead. But very few have said, Lord, You're the only way. You're the only hope. I'll follow You. You see, salvation is more than letting Jesus Christ come into your life. Then number three, becoming a Christian means that you are saved and delivered from what you are, what you have been, what you have believed, how you have lived, and you are made a new creature. If there's no change in your life when you get saved, you need to go back to the cross. He will change you. He will make you a new creature. Uh, can we look at it? Can we make sure that the Bible is saying that? Keep your place in Galatians. Go to 2 Corinthians. 
You're just going back one book. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. How many of you would say you believe every word of this book? Okay, let's put that to the test. Look what it says in verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he might be a new creature. What does it say? He is a new creature. Some old things are passed away. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That's what happens when a person is genuinely born again. Do you know what the problem is in most of our churches? We're trying to get unsaved people to live like believers. See, when you're born again, God changes you. It doesn't mean you're perfect. Right? You can't be perfect. But I'm telling you something. According to the Word of God, He will conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. That is something that will happen. Um, Carrie, I remember when your mom received Christ. She changed, didn't she? It's an amazing thing to see what happens when a person is truly born again. Uh, I think it was Bob Maxwell. Didn't you say that when you got saved that drinking was no longer a problem? He didn't need a 12-step plan. He had a one-step Jesus Christ plan. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody, when they get saved, they stop having trouble with addictions. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, though, is that when you get saved, you're a new creature. You're a new creature. You're changed. And let's see that demonstrated from the life of the Apostle Paul. Go back to Galatians 1 with me. He wasn't given a better or an improved life. He was given a new life. It was completely different. Let's consider Saul's circumstance. Now, remember, he was Saul at this time. Let's, let's consider the difference or consider Saul's circumstances at the time of his conversion. He's traveling with an escort of soldiers. He's not going by himself to wreak havoc on these churches. He has a, he has a, a, a cohort of soldiers with him, military men and officers from the high priest. He's traveling with authority and power from the government. He's traveling with the seal of approval of the religious powers. He's the head man. The soldiers are there to support him. The religious leaders are nodding their approval. He has letters granting him permission to persecute, arrest, and even kill. He had incredible power. So in, in the world's eyes, in his world, he was the man. Can't you just picture him in his arrogance, in his pride, heading to Damascus to kill people for God? That's what he was doing. He had everything that people in his circle would ever want. What the soldiers might have liked to do, Saul could do. What the religious leaders secretly desired, Saul was about to accomplish. He was the epitome of success in his day and among his people. So now, consider what he was like, the kind of man that was walking on the road to Damascus. 
Now consider the immediate consequences of his conversion. You see, he met Jesus Christ. He met Jesus Christ. And don't forget, this is someone who had died. Aaron? Where's Aaron Edwards? Anybody? Have you ever had anybody get up off the table while you're working on them? Aaron's a funeral director. I asked a funeral director that when I was in high school if anybody had ever gotten up. And he said, if they did, it would be the last one. You see, people don't, who are dead don't generally get up and walk. Is that right? And they don't generally speak to you out of the heavens. You see, when you meet Jesus Christ, something changes. When you genuinely meet the risen Savior, something changes. Instantly, he became a servant. Instantly, he became a servant among those despised, rejected, and hated. The object of the very persecution that he once led. He became one of the people that he was trying to kill. Look at verse 17. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. You see, he's going to Damascus a different man than the last time he was heading to Damascus. What had happened? He met Jesus. This time without a military escort. This time without the power of the government behind him. This time without letters of approval from the religious elite. No worldly dignity or authority. Just a lowly follower of Jesus Christ. He'd lost his license to kill. He'd lost the respect that he had. He lost his appeal. He has moved from the man to nobody. Look at Philippians. Keep your place in Galatians. Turn with me over to Philippians. Just a couple of books after where you are. Philippians chapter 3. Look at verse 4. This is, this is who Paul was. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh... If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I am more. So here's what he's saying. He said, you think you were somebody? You think that you've got something to be proud of? Look at my life. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Here's what the Apostle Paul said. When someone wanted to know what a Pharisee looked like, they'd say, look at Saul. If somebody wanted to know what a perfect Jew was, look at Saul. Best educated man, sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the first rank of the first tribe, one of the greatest men in the world in that, in that world system. The Apostle Paul said, that was me. But now, so we've considered what he was before his conversion, we considered the change. Now, look at his attitude about it. Because what we do is this. I've given up so much for the Lord. You don't know how good I had it. And now my life stinks. Okay? Look at what Paul said. Look at verse, keep the next verse in, in uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, 
and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Now look at his attitude about it. And you count them but dung that I may win Christ. Do you think that Paul missed his old life? No. No. See, not only did he lose everything in the world, he was content to lose everything he had in the world. And when he compared it to knowing Jesus, he considered what he gave up dung. Something you don't want. Take it to the dump. Get it out of here. I don't want it anymore. You see, far too many people profess to be Christians. And far too few have ever genuinely met Jesus Christ. Because when you meet Him and you start learning about Him and you know who He is, that old life that you've lived, those old priorities, they fall away. You're not striving for that old life anymore. You want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ because it's far better. From Saul's perspective, he had everything he could ever desire, but he did not know that he had a death sentence in the lake of fire awaiting him that he was going to burn forever in the fires of God's wrath and judgment, because though he may have gained the whole world, he stood to lose his own soul. Now, though, now that he had met Jesus Christ and he's been saved from that wrath, the best thing that he can do, the thing that he's given his life and his body and all of his wealth, all of his fame, the thing that he's given, given it all for is to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there's nothing better. When I was in Bible college, I worked at Circuit City. And there was a guy named Greg who was working on his master's at University of Tennessee. And uh, I gave him the gospel many times. And he had a lot of questions about the Word of God. Listen to what he said to me. He said, Jim, if I believed what you're saying, if I really believed it, if it's true, I'd have to give my whole life to it. I couldn't do anything else. And he didn't receive Jesus Christ. You see, Greg understood. Greg understood. You don't just take Jesus and add him to your life. You take that old life and you say, Lord Jesus, it's all yours. I'll follow you. That's what the Apostle Paul did. You see, this was the change that took place. His attitude. Now that his soul was saved from hell, it's not in his... And not in his future. The wrath of God no longer abides on him, but he's freely delivered, living forever through the grace of God Almighty. He looks back and he says, I didn't have anything. I thought I had it all, but I had nothing. It was all a temporary appeal to his pride. That's what his whole life was. He was the man. Now he realized he didn't have anything. All that he had would have mattered not at all when he died and woke up in hell. Apostle Paul could tell you, now that I have Jesus, I want to tell the whole world about Jesus and fellowship with His saints and keep company with those that sing His praise. Now, I want you to consider, we've looked at his life before he met Jesus. We looked at his life after he met Jesus. We looked at his attitude toward his old life. Now what I want us to think about, what would the attitude of the average American Christian be? to the post-Damascus Road Apostle Paul. I want you to think about this. How would the average Christian in America 
have viewed the exchange that the Apostle Paul made. A Christian, look at Paul. But Paul, look at all that you gave up. Paul would look at him and say, gave up? When have you stood weeping as the garbage man drove away with your garbage? You understand, that's how the Apostle Paul looked at his old life. See, we look at the, 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 the fame, the religious world thought he was great. His face was on the cover of Christianity Today. He was somebody. The Christian television network ran commercials about his show all the time. Stadiums filled up to watch him say, God wants you to be happy. The world said, this guy's the greatest Christian communicator in the world. You can have your best life now. <laughs> oh, man. Apostle Paul would say, why would I stand and weep and watch a former life that was in opposition to God drive off into the distance? The trouble is, if you don't value Jesus for who he is, if you don't value Jesus for the wonderful Savior He is, what you say is, you mean I have to give that up? You mean Christians don't do that? No, when you really love Jesus Christ, you say, Lord, what can I give you? What can I do? Notice the order. You don't have to give anything up to get saved. But when you're genuinely saved, you're saying, Lord, what's holding me back? What can I do to better serve you? <laughs> but you know what we do? We hold on to the garbage man's leg. No, don't take it away. I know it stinks, but I like it. Is that crazy? How many of you are kind of glad when you get the trash out? We, we, the, I had been in the Middle East. Laura and the kids went to Colorado. So Jacob took the trash out and there were maggots crawling on the can. And so we love that so much, we brought the can into the kitchen and said, you guys are part of our family now. No. Why? Because it's garbage. Now, let's take it to the next step. The Apostle Paul didn't call it garbage. What did he call it? Um, Brother Figali. Brother Strickland, they went to Sudan and they were the first white men to be in Sudan in 40 years in the section where they were. And so they planned a special place for them to stay and they had a little mound in the sand to go to the bathroom in that nobody had used yet and that was a special treat for them. And they just covered up in the sand. That's, that's the way they live. Now, how many of you think people are, are, are really wanting to live like that? When I was in Ghana a few years ago, they had open sewers on the side of the road. We're in this town of the city of Kumasi. I think a million people live there. And they had their shacks built, and then there was a ditch, and then there was the road, and they'd have planks across the ditch to go to their houses. And the ditch was an open sewer. And people would sit on those planks and dangle their feet in the sewage to stay cool. 
And that's why the average life expectancy is less than 40. Now, how many of you would trade your life for that? Anybody? But do you understand the Apostle Paul said that all of his pomp and circumstance, his letters from the government, his letters from the religious leader, the soldiers by his side, the palace that he had an opportunity to live in, he said all of that was what those people were dangling their feet in. But the problem that we as American Christians have is we think that worldly success is still the pinnacle. Apostle Paul would think we were crazy. If a modern American had met Paul on Damascus Road, he would have said, Paul, what happened to you? Well, I met Jesus. You poor thing. Where are your soldiers? Where are your letters from the government? Where's your pomp and circumstance? Paul would say, that dung? I left that behind. For what, Paul? A bigger army? No, no army. Oh, more political influence. You're the head of the religious right now. No, no influence. Where are you going? Well, there's a little house church up the road. I'm going to go and sing and pray and preach God's Word. Do they know you're coming? No, they won't even recognize my face. You see, all that fame, all that power, he called it all dung. Why should I be known when they can know Jesus Christ? Why should I brag on myself when we could go and boast and brag on the Savior who died for sins, who conquered death in the grave and rose triumphantly? I'm just one more of His servants. You see, the thing that keeps most people from coming to Jesus Christ alone is because they still love what this world has to offer. One of the things Brother Figali, um, Edgar Figali, our, our missionary to the Middle East, he, he established two churches in Lebanon. The first church he established during the, the Lebanese War. Remember when they blew up our embassy in Beirut and killed what, 212 Marines, I think? Um, he was right there in, in Beirut. He would, they, would, they would only be able to buy their, uh, their food once a month because car bombs would explode as they were trying to drive their car to get groceries. He was there. Do you know he said that was the, the greatest time of growth that their church ever saw? Interesting. Um, land is ridiculously expensive in Beirut. And so they had a church building that they had bought. And there was property next to him that would be, I don't know, six or $700,000. He got it for $20,000 in the war. Why? Because in the war, your land's not worth anything. Nobody wants to live there with bombs dropping around them. It's interesting how in wartime, the things that we count valuable now mean nothing. They mean nothing. Do you understand that we as believers are in a war? We are in a war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And here's what Satan uses. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. What was the Apostle Paul struggling with? Lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And yet we as American Christians, we just revel in what we have as opposed to reveling in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a real issue. Paul has new friends, new interests, and new values. He is now joining himself to the people he was once trying to kill. Now his former friends will try to kill him. 
He's gone from the hunter to the hunted, from the persecutor to the persecuted, from the one who has earthly power to joining himself with those who have no power at all. He traded palaces for dungeons, jails, and prisons. He traded comfort for a whipping post. He traded a claim for stoning. But consider the result. Consider the result of the exchange. Look at verse back in Galatians 1. Look at verse 23. Verse 22. Speaking of himself, he was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they had heard only that he, which persecuted us in times past, now preacheth the faith which once he destroyed. And they glorified God in me. I wonder, if when you, uh, you as a believer, the people that you know can say, my goodness, what a change. This guy's a new man. She's a new lady. You see, that's what brings glory to God. You know why? How many of you have ever tried to change? <laughs> Only He can make that change. That's why the glory goes to Him. Apostle Paul said, They glorified God in me. This is God's desire for you. He wants us to conduct our lives in such a way that it becomes evident to the world that Jesus Christ is living inside of us. I want you to think about it. I'll finish with this. I wonder if you have left the world behind. How many of you here today would say, I know for sure that I'm born again. Jesus Christ is my Savior. How many of you would say that? I know. All right. But now we're going to do a little test to see how you've left the world behind. Okay? Let's do a little test. You don't have to answer. Don't answer out loud. Just ask yourself these questions. Where am I going to send my kids to college? Christian education isn't good enough. I need the world to approve the education that my kids have. Co-ed dorms, that's okay. That's no big deal. Because, of course, Ohio State has the best interest of your kids at heart. It's really interesting. Everybody was with me up until 30 seconds ago. Remember, we've looked at it before. Francis Potter, one of the, the authors of, of modern education, one of the authors of the system said, the purpose of this educational system is to separate people from the beliefs of their parents. That's what it's designed to do. You need to pray long and hard about where your kids go to college. How many of you know kids that were raised in a good home, went to a good church, went to college and lost their faith? How many of you know people that are like that? Here, let's do this with our kids. <laughs> do your best. Love ya. See, we've got to change the way that we think. What is success? What is success? Having a degree from the right college, a job at the right firm, a claim of the world. It's amazing how many people throw their children away so people in the stands will do this. 
because you can run over the goal line. You can kick the ball in the goal. You can make the shot. I'm all for that. I love sports. As you can see, I'm an amazing athlete. Man, I tried playing basketball with the kids. You want to see something sad? Watch me try to make a layup. It was horrible. I love sports. But what's the priority? What is the priority? Man, I'm just telling you, if your kid's going to a secular university, you'd better be there holding their hand the whole way. You had better be there. What did the professor teach today? What's in that textbook? You understand that, that, that there are professors who make it their life's goal to destroy your child's faith. How many of you know that that's the case? You know that that's the case. That is their life's goal to destroy your child's faith. You know, I'd probably pray long and hard before I had that professor teach my child. Can we look at Psalm chapter 1? The thing I want you to understand is that there are Christian alternatives to secular education. Now, let's stop for just a second. We have people in this room right now who teach at Hardin, at Houston, at Sydney, the middle school at Sydney, at Piqua, um, is it Fairlawn, uh, Indian Lake? Who did I miss? Sydney High School? Um, Jody, what school do you teach at? Fairlawn? Praise God for our Christian teachers. We have teachers here that teach at Christian Academy. Praise God for our Christian teachers who are standing in the midst of darkness and representing Jesus Christ in that place. Pray for these teachers. Amen? That doesn't change the system. Your students will go from one teacher, from our godly teachers... We've got to pray when they go and sit in that classroom of the person who doesn't believe in God or who believes in something alternative, who's living an alternative lifestyle, death style. We need to pray about these things. Look what the Bible says. Verse 1, Psalm 1, 1. Blessed is the man. How many of you want your family to be blessed? Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. We don't do that. If you want to be blessed, don't do that. Is that clear? But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in this law doth he meditate, in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. How about that? The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. That's the stuff that falls off of Wheat when you throw it up in the air. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. I want my kids to have success. I want my children to prosper. Now here, we're, we're taking a test. Do you all remember? We're taking a test. Where are you going to send your kids to college? How active are you with, are you with your children in school today. 
Do you understand that we're in a war? Do you understand that Satan hates your children and he has people in positions of power to destroy them? How many of you agree with what I just said? They hate you. Satan hates you. There are people that absolutely hate your faith in the one true God who believe in a literal six-day creation and that because He created this world, He has the prerogative to order this world. He created you. He can command you. See, they don't want that because they want to live their own lives. What is godly success? What is worldly success? Do you understand that they're different? You see, when you get saved, everything changes. Those things that I thought were great, the Apostle Paul's authority, his doctor's degrees, all of these things. And I'm for education. I hope to have a doctor's degree soon myself. I'm for education. I'm not saying that those are bad things. What I'm saying is make sure that it's the right kind of education, the right kind of success. And those worldly ideas that you had, you put it behind you. Brother Strickland, Sam Strickland, he pastored in Rhode Island for 30 years. Providence, Rhode Island. And they had, one of the kids from their Christian school went on to play with the New England Patriots. And um, he was there in New Orleans at the, at the uh, Super Bowl. And he said, I couldn't leave my room. Because of the nakedness in the hallways. The, the wickedness that was... I could not leave my room. How many of you, that's the dream you have for your children? Uh, I, I met a man I was, I was playing golf with. A pastor friend over in Indianapolis. He has a man in his church that's a bodyguard. That's what he does for a living. And he was a bodyguard for... Um, oh, I can't remember his first name. O'Neal, who played for the, the Pacers. He's a bodyguard for these professional basketball players. I said, what are they like? He said, they're animals. He said, you can't imagine the only thing they live for is their basest desires. And these are the people we put on our walls. These are our heroes. What would the Apostle Paul have called that? He would have called it dumb. See, we got to change our perspective. You might be a guest here. You might be saying, this guy's crazy. I'm just saying we have absolutely, as believers, as Christians, as followers of Christ, we have turned our godly priorities upside down. Biblical success is submission to the Word of God and His purposes for our lives. It's not getting the world's stamp of approval. We're not going to the government to say, do you like what we teach? We're not expecting the government. Who are we going to vote for that's going to fix America? Anybody have any suggestions? No. What, does, what changes a man? The Holy Spirit in them. We're going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to live holy lives. We're going to be light in the community. And then we're going to be good stewards and vote for the right people and be informed politically and those things. But political success is not scriptural success. Financial success is not scriptural success. Scriptural success is being in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ and counting everything else as done. How'd you do on the test? How'd you do? You see, 
the world would not have called the Apostle Paul successful. But Jesus Christ. Can, can we look at it, the last part? I said we were done 10 minutes ago. This will be it, I promise. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. One of my favorite passages of Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Look at verse 6. For I am now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but to all them also that love His appearing. Do you love His appearing? Or are you going to be one of those, if the rapture comes, you're going to say, Not yet! Not yet! I didn't finish that game! I didn't get to drive my new boat! Nah, let's love His appearing. If you can enjoy the boat and love His appearing, praise God, enjoy the boat. But let's keep it in the right place. Amen? Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word.